Good morning. It's a blessing to be with you this morning, and I do apologize for not being able to bring my family. I told some that I was supposed to uh, to leave at four o'clock this morning, and I wound up waking up at four fifty. So I just put on the clothes and jumped in the car and uh, didn't even wake my children. Just told my wife goodbye. So I'm sorry that they couldn't be here, and um, thankful to have had a good trip down and safe arrival through some of the snowy weather. Uh, was not expecting to be caught in snow on the way down either. But do ask you to pray as we um, change the order of service and just pray that God would pour out his spirit upon the preaching and the, the hearing of his word and that uh, as was prayed this morning that, that God would uh, speak to us and that we'd have a message we can meditate on for a long time. I'd like to turn to the book of James chapter 4. James chapter 4, and and speak to you about a very simple topic, and that is the topic of friendship. The topic of friendship. The verse in James 4 that I want to read, verse 4 says, it starts out very harshly, it says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses. Now we know what that is. That's a man or woman that's unfaithful in the closest of earthly relationships. Somebody that's unfaithful to their true love, to their spouse. And this is often used um, to describe the relationship that God has with his people through Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches us that Jesus considers his church to be like a bride. So God uh, calls us uh, his wife, his lover, his spouse, and we're to be faithful to him. You can read in the Old Testament how Israel was unfaithful to God when they would worship idols. It was just like committing adultery, their unfaithfulness. So now James is talking to the New Testament church. He's speaking to us today, and he says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses. Know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Now when I first come to this verse, when I just first read it, it causes me to to consider just how much I care for the things of this world and then immediately how that care and that love and affection that the natural man has for the things of this life how much that's opposed to the kingdom of God and to what God's doing in the lives of his people very important subject especially in every age but especially in the day and age in which we live the, the idea of being friends with the world. You know, we're to be uh, in the world, but not of the world. And young people, there's so many influences readily available that will twist your thinking and your perspective and entice you to conform, not to the image of Jesus Christ, but to the image of the world. So many messages, so many uh, pictures that we can see that make 
sin enticing, that makes sin seem appealing, that make rebellion against parents and immorality seem cool. Every young person deals with that as they uh, come to maturity, and adults deal with that as well. There's peer pressure and temptation to conform to fit in. A lot of the things that we consider as norms in our culture are just the results of people wanting to fit in, not wanting to stick out. We live about an hour or so away from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And you can go there and you can, you can see people that, that stick out. If they were to, sometimes occasionally we might get one in the restaurant that I work at and they're just their attire, the way they conduct themselves causes them to stick out. Now among their peers, they blend in, but there's a desire for us to want to conform to the image of those that we respect, those that we love, those that we're around. And yet the Bible says, be not conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So this is a, the perpetual conflict and the warfare that rages within every Christian, and that is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and not to desire friendship with the world because God says that friendship of the world is enmity with God. And if you will be the friend of the world, you're the enemy of God. It's good for us to think of it in those terms. It's good for us to think of it in those terms because we see that there's no middle ground, that a choice has to be made. Whose side are you on? Is it the side of the world or is it the side of Jesus Christ? And James begins the letter saying that of his own will begot he us with the word of truth, talking about God the Father and every good and perfect gift which he gives. And so according to his sovereignty, in his timing, he begots again, he gives his children the new birth. And when he does that, that new nature within that's united to God, the Holy Spirit, you are, by God's grace, the friend of God and have a desire to walk with him and to please him, but you still have that old nature, that sin nature that you received from, from your uh, forefather Adam and from your parents that is opposed to the things of God. And so when we think about spiritual warfare, Ephesians chapter 6, for example, it's good for us to remember that we, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We um, sometimes get our eyes off of the real enemy. You know, the Bible says that our enemy is uh, principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. The enemy's not uh, the, the leader of your country that's not doing what you want. The enemy's not your boss at work that's being too harsh with you. The enemy's not uh, your neighbor down the street that's being critical of the way you uh, keep your lawn or whatever. The enemy is, is Satan. And it's a spiritual warfare. And a lot of the warfare is fought right here. Right here within your own heart. And that is this warfare about who am I going to be friends with? That's what it boils down to. Who do you want to be friends with? You can't be friends with both, God says. It's either world or God. And as a child of God, how do we work out our desire to be friends with God and to be content with being hated by the world because that's, that's the choice that's given to each one of us. 
Will we be a friend of the world or be a friend of God? So I want to look at this some. It's a simple topic. It's a simple subject, the idea of friendship. But in studying it, it's been helpful to me, and I've learned just how much I don't know about uh, what it is to be a good friend. We can look at some scriptures about friendship and see qualities of good friends and how we can show our friendship and loyalty, allegiance to God, and see also how he is a friend to us. He's a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Jesus Christ is our, our elder brother that loves us unconditionally and and look at that and hopefully glean some things that will benefit our walk with God and our um, relationship with Him. In the book of John, there's a man named Pilate, which many of you have heard of before. You know Pilate. John chapter 19. And Pilate was given this decision. He was given this challenge to choose sides. Whose friend would he be? And you know, Pilate, he was like the rest of us. He uh, wanted to think well of himself, and, and given the right circumstances, he wanted to do, quote, the right thing. He wanted to consider himself a good person. He was in a position of authority. Uh, he, was, he was ruling in a very difficult land in the Roman Empire, a very contentious, a very a place of a hotbed of contention and strife with the Jews. There were rebellious people and unwilling to submit to the Roman yoke. Unlike any of the other peoples the Romans had conquered, the Jews were a stubborn and stiff-necked people, and it was because of their relationship uh, with the covenant God and their foundation upon the Old Testament scriptures and their uh, desire to see a new kingdom and a new age come and their confidence that God would at some point bring the Messiah who would deliver them and and not all the Jews were born again, not all the Jews were children of God. They all had hope in the Messiah, but it was only those that were quickened and born again of God's Spirit that had eyes to see when the Messiah came, when Jesus Christ came, that they were given eyes to see that this is the Son of God, even though he came in a fashion that they weren't expecting. Well, Pilate here is given a choice. He interrogates, he uh, questions Jesus, and he tells the people several times, I find no fault in him. I find in him nothing worthy of death. And yet they're, they're vehement, they're adamant. Um, we want him punished. He says, okay, I'll chasten him. I'll beat him with stripes. I'll chastise him and let him go. They say, no, we don't want him punished. We want him put to death. Pilate says, well, there's this murderer and this causer of sedition, Barabbas, and he's over here and it's the custom on the... Passover on the feast of Passover for me to release a prisoner to you so which would you choose Jesus this healer the one that's done these notable miracles or Barabbas the causer of sedition and the people uh, frustratingly to Pilate I'm sure cry out give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus and Pilate uh, multiple times seeks a way out of this dilemma how he can be a, a, a just ruler and, and please the Jews at the same time. And you see, where Pilate comes down to, where he's brought to, is where he has to ultimately choose. Am I going to do the right thing, or am I going to please man? Now, I'm not saying that Pilate was born again and knew God and wanted to do the right thing in order to please God, but he was at least moral in the sense that every other human being is, and that is that they want to have, we want to have a good opinion of ourselves. Sometimes, as children of God, that's why it's hard to come to the Scriptures, because when we read it, 
The scriptures don't tell you that you're a good person. The scriptures tell you that you're actually a very wicked person and that uh, God's standard is holiness, that he's not going to be satisfied with your vain attempts to worship him in your own strength, that he's not pleased with our man-made religiosity, that he's not uh, uh, just uh, overjoyed with your uh, few sacrifices. The testimony of scripture is that Jesus Christ is the son of God and he deserves all the glory. And it's your pleasure and it's your privilege and your duty as God's people to lift up not yourself, to lift up not your own, puff up your own pride and your own ego, but to lift up and to exalt and to point the fingers and the glory to Jesus Christ and to be content with whatever lot God gives you for Jesus' sake, trusting that God is working in all of it for his glory and for his good. Pilate is brought to the point of where he has to choose between uh, pleasing men are doing the right thing. We could say for God's children, for pleasing God. And it says in verse 12 of John 19, it says, And from thenceforth, Pilate sought to release him. Pilate had talked with Jesus. He had asked Jesus questions. Jesus had answered him when he chose to and when he pleased to. Pilate said, uh, almost... Uh, exasperatingly to Jesus, he says, Know thou not that I have power to crucify thee? In other words, Pilate's saying to Jesus, Give me something to hold on to. Give me something so that I can help you get out of this. Pilate wants to release Jesus. He wants something that he can, he can place his feet upon and say, Here's why I'm going to release him. He says, Jesus, don't you know I have power to crucify thee and I have power to release thee? And Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. And it says, From thenceforth Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, Here it is, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. See, I think Pilate could have been content with frustrating the Jews. He probably would have enjoyed uh, antagonizing them if it didn't cause too many repercussions in the kingdom that he was supposed to be ruling. But it came down to this. Friendship with the world ultimately was about being friends with Caesar because Caesar was the one that appointed Pilate to his commission. Caesar was the one that could promote Pilate. Caesar was the one that held Pilate's life in his hand. And the Jews bring Pilate's decision right down, right in front of him, where he has to make the decision. Look, you choose friendship with Caesar. For us, you could put friendship with the world. Or crucify Jesus. Reject him. Put him to death. And that's ultimately, I believe, the, the, the choice that God is telling us that his people have to make. Not in the sense that you can you can reject Jesus. We know that accepting him, believing on him is by sovereign grace. But in the sense that each day that you live, whenever you go out into the world and in your families and in your day-to-day -day interactions with other people, you constantly have to make the decision to be friends with Jesus. That I'm on Jesus' side. An example. Let's say you're in the workplace and somebody uses the Lord's name in vain. 
not on accident, but perhaps it's a recurring thing. And the Bible says the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. So it's not like you should fly off the handle and say, hey, don't use that name. But it also says if somebody's offended you, you should go to them and, and address that, that issue with that person one-on-one. So if this individual perhaps is your boss or somebody of influence within the company, maybe you have to make the choice of potentially of getting a pay raise or a promotion or standing up for name of King Jesus. It's a simple illustration, but I believe that each day we live, we have those opportunities and those choices that we're given where we can either choose friendship with the world or friendship with God. What does it mean to be friends with the world? Well, I've already alluded to this before, but in Matthew 6.33, it says for us to, Jesus commands us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. I believe when it's talking about, when, when James talks about friendship with the world, that he's not talking about, you know, being friends with, in a sense of, of loving and caring for the well-being of, of people in the world, of people that you interact with. Because the Bible says that we're to, we're to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And you can't pick your neighbors, really. It's kind of providential who you work with, who you live around, uh, who you're with in the community, in the church. God kind of gives us our neighbors. And they may or may not be Christians. They may or not be born again. But you're still commanded to love your neighbor as you love yourself. So I'm not talking about uh, wearing a frown and turning your back on everybody that's not a Christian and saying, well, I can't be friends with you because the preacher said friendship with the world is enmity with God and you're of the world. That's not, I don't believe that's what James is talking about. We're to love our neighbors. We're to love our enemies even. Um, we're to pray for them, which despitefully use us and persecute us. We're to bless those that curse us. So we're not talking about uh, rejecting people that aren't Christians. No, if somebody's not a believer, that's a great opportunity to share the good news about who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for his elect. But I believe it's talking more about the, the current world order, I guess, would be a way to describe it. The way things function, the way things uh, exist in this present age. Um, in Mark chapter 8, verse 36, he says, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? The reason that Jesus is talking about that, the reason he's addressing that, is that there is this temptation for people to want to gain the world, for men to want to gain the world. I was listening to the radio on a recent road trip, um, and a man called in, and he was concerned about the events taking place in Russia and Ukraine and the president of Russia, and he said... He said, I think this man's just uh, lost his mind. He's just going to uh, blow up the whole thing, and he'll be happy about it because he'll be hiding out in a bunker somewhere. And the, the talk show host said, I disagree with you. He said, I think, I think he wants, I don't think he wants to blow it up. I think he wants to rule it. And I think that's true for really for all of us because even think about the temptation that Jesus Christ faced in the wilderness. You remember in Matthew's account the last temptation that Satan proposed to Jesus? 
He said, let's go up on a mountain, look at all the kingdoms of the world. I've heard some commentators indicate that, that might even have meant he had visions of the, the future nations, the future countries that would rise. He showed him all the glory of them and put into his mind the idea that, hey, you could be ruler of all of this. All you have to do, just do one teensy-weensy little sin, bow down and worship me. And what did Jesus say? He said, get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. So I believe that when Jesus talks about the idea of gaining the whole world, he's talking to real people who have that real temptation, this desire to gain and to accumulate. Uh, maybe you don't want to, to rule the continent or rule the countries of the world, but maybe, maybe you do like to shop and you like to add clothes to your wardrobe. Or maybe you do like to go to the car lot and look at the new cars. I believe when James is talking about friendship with the world, he's talking about this desire and this lust to accumulate and to gain, whether it's power or money or possessions. I listen to the young people at work talk, and uh, some of them are believers, some are not. And this one young man was quoting, he was talking about why he wanted to get, a, I guess, a job promotion so he could get more money. And he was quoting from a, a movie, and he, he said, he said, this is the way it works. He says, you, you, get the, uh, you get the money, and he was talking about making money in an illegal way. You get the money so that you have the power, and you get the power so you can get the girl. And that summarized this young man's uh, role for life. And I thought, you know, that's, that's probably true of, of all of us by nature. We just want power, and we want to accumulate and our temptations, the individual temptations may be different. But when he's talking about friendship with the world, I believe that's what he's talking about. Walking and living in the world in such a way that you're trying to manipulate and gain and increase. You're walking the way the world goes so that you can get what the world has to offer. Do you want what the world has to offer? Are you walking in the way the world wants you to walk? Is that what entices you? James says, if so, you're being an adulterer and an adulteress because as a child of God, you're not to want what the world has to offer. You're not to seek after the things the world has to provide because you have true riches in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, 4, you have all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. You say, well, Brother Ace, I can't, I can't see those like I can see the material world. I can't conceptualize. I can't fathom what that means to have heavenly blessings. I can't put a price tag on that, and it's hard for me to value that. Well, that's, beloved, what faith is for. Faith is where we're able to lay hold of, and we're able to embrace the unseen realities. Jesus said to Thomas, he said, blessed art thou. Um, he says, because you've, you've seen me. I can't quote it correctly, I'm sorry. But he said, blessed are those that believe and have not seen. So you're one of those that Jesus was, was speaking about. He said, Thomas... Because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. You remember doubting Thomas. He said, I won't believe till I can see, until I can touch the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he did, he said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. That's a miracle of grace, beloved. If you believe this morning in the one that you haven't seen, if you're able to love the one 
you believe loves you. It's a miracle of sovereign grace. In Ephesians chapter 1 as, as well, it, the Bible teaches us that the miracle of, of faith is just as great as the miracle of resurrection. You say that would be a miracle for the people in the graves to come back to life. We believe it's going to happen. We know when Christ comes. You know, Martha said that to Jesus. I know the dead will rise in the resurrection. And Jesus said, I am the, the resurrection and the truth and the life. And it would be a miracle to go to the graveyards and see somebody that had been dead for days or weeks or months or years, centuries, to come forth out of the grave, a new person, a whole person without sin. A miracle. Resurrection is a miracle and a, um, I think arguably the most mighty declaration that we'll see in our life of the power of God, greater than the power of creation, greater than the miracle of the incarnation, the resurrection declares the power of God. And the Bible says that for you and I to believe takes the same power as a dead person to come back to life. It takes the same power as the resurrection. It says, what is the, listen, Ephesians 1.19, what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. So in other words, it was the power of God that raised Jesus Christ, and it's the power of God that gives you faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It gives you faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if you've got that faith, it's a gift from God, and don't uh, count it a light thing. It's a precious thing. We're saved by grace through faith, Ephesians chapter 2 teaches us. And in, in Romans chapter 4, we're taught that because we are justified by faith, it is we are saved by grace. He says, Romans chapter 4, he says, Because the law worketh wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith, speaking words, of justice that are under the law, the Jews or those that were not under the law, the Gentiles, they're all saved the same way, and that's by faith. They're saved by grace through faith. And he says, because it's of faith, it is by grace. So it's God's gift of faith that you have this morning. It's the gift of his sovereign grace. Now, James 4, he says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. This, First uh, Timothy talks about the love of money is the root of all evil, but... Uh, Godliness with contentment is a great gain. I believe that would be a good contrast to this verse. Godliness with contentment versus the love of money. I think friendship of the world is really kind of defined by that idea of loving money, loving the things that are in the world. Let me remind you of, of what is in the world in 1 John chapter 2. John teaches us that we're not to love the world, verse 15, love not the world. This world is passing away. We want to hold lightly to the things that we have. If you possess anything in this life, hold to it lightly. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He says, for all that is in the world, here it is, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. These three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So when you're talking about friendship with the world, you're talking about being well acquainted and being a companion and 
and getting along with and having the same agenda as those three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, as Christians, as believers, we know we can't uh, accept sin. We can't uh, say that sin is, is good or acceptable or pleasing. But because of the deceitfulness of sin, because of the deceitfulness of our human nature, sometimes as believers we might be tempted to kind of conceal our sin and pretend it doesn't exist or, or twist the definition of sin and try to reinterpret it in politically correct terms so that it's less offensive. Let's call sin what it is. And let's think about sin the way that God thinks about sin, and that is that he hates it. That means that there's a large part of our thinking and our speech and the way that we live our life that if we're going to be the friend with God, we have to say, I reject that outright as being, as being uh, something that God hates and something that I need salvation from and something that, that only Jesus Christ can deliver me from. Being a believer is not about uh, putting on your dress clothes and pr- putting on a face to the world that says, I've got everything together and I'm basically a good person. No, it's about being made by God's sovereign grace, sometimes painfully aware of our uh, wretched state because of the sin that, that afflicts us. We need salvation, beloved, not only from the penalty of sin, from the judgment that's to come, but we need salvation from the power of sin in our life. And I believe the gospel teaches that in Jesus Christ, we not only have deliverance from the penalty of sin, the judgment to come, but we have deliverance. When the Bible says the gospel is the power of God into salvation, I believe it's talking about that deliverance that we have by Jesus Christ from the power of sin in our lives. You say, I'm wrestling with, with the sin of lying. I'm wrestling with the sin of filthy communication. I'm wrestling with the sin of, of unfaithfulness. Whatever it is, where's the deliverance going to be found? Where's the salvation? Is it in going to church more? Is it in reading your Bible more? Is it in praying more? Those things might help in as much as they point you to Jesus Christ. But the salvation, beloved, is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is in uh, His Spirit, which He gives to His people. And when we are wrestling with some sin, the Bible says uh, we should confess our sins one to another. There's help in that. There's benefit in confessing our sins, confessing our faults. But we're to turn to uh, not not pop psychology, not uh, self-help books, not the wisdom of mother and father as, as, or, or grandparents as, as helpful as the traditions may be, but we're to turn to the person and work of Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul said, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. When Peter was preaching the first sermon that's recorded after Pentecost, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, he quoted from the Old Testament and he said, in the last days, in the days in which we're living, he said, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he's talking about calling not like uh, that sorcerer that's recorded later on in Acts who saw that 
Paul and these uh, apostles were doing great wonders. They were casting out demons in the name of Jesus Christ. And so they, those seven sons of Sceva, they said, well, well, we'll do this and we'll use this to our benefit and we'll, we'll cast out demons. And they said, we'll cast you out in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. And the demons turned to him and said, I know Paul, I know Peter, but who are you? We're not talking about just power in, in the name of Jesus said arbitrarily, but we're talking about power in the name of Jesus Christ when he's called upon in faith by the Spirit of God, which God gives to his little children. And he says that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now you say, well, that's an Arminian doctrine. Why are you preaching that here? I'm telling you, that's what the Scripture says, and that's where salvation is for God's children. It's in calling upon the mighty name of Jesus Christ and looking to Him for salvation, and not to yourself, not to other people, not to, uh, to, to tradition or to human reasoning, but looking to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who's a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Now I want to look at the friendship that we have with Jesus, the kind of friend that He is as our elder brother. The thoughts that I have on this are from a book by Tim Keller about the prodigal God. But it's here in the book of Luke, chapter 15, where it talks about the prodigal son. And and the, the son that was wayward and that went, a, went astray. And I want you to see how this younger son, this younger brother, had an older brother that was the antitype of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was not like the older brother in this account. Let's read, read through this. It says, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Give me the portion of goods that fall to me. And he divided unto them his living. So the younger brother is like us. We've chosen, what, friendship with the world by nature, and we're dead in trespasses and in sins. The younger son could have had relationship with the father and with the family and been at home and enjoyed the comforts of home, but he wanted more than his father, more than his father's life and his father's relationship. He wanted the money. He wanted the stuff. Do you ever serve God just to get something from him? Is that ever your motive of saying, well, I'm going to try to do what God wants me to so that maybe... I'll get the job promotion or maybe I'll uh, get the boyfriend or the girlfriend. Is that ever your mindset? The younger brother wanted a portion of his goods. He wanted the money. It says, And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living. You know, sometimes God gives us what we want. Sometimes he gives us what we ask for. Um, the passage that we're reading in James talks about not having what you desire. This really kind of sets the context for the verse that we've been reading. But from whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lust that war in your members? You lust and have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not, because you ask not. You ask and receive not, because you ask amiss. Sometimes God gives us what we're asking for, even when it's the wrong thing, just to show us that that's not really what we wanted in the first place. It's to show us uh, the riches uh, that are in Jesus Christ. That was the case for me as a young man. God gave me for a season, and I praise God it was just for a season, 
some of the things that I thought would make me happy. He gave me the desires that young men desire after and lust after. And then one by one, within a year's time, he took each one of those things away. And he broke me and he humbled me. And he stripped away all these things that I was hoping in and living for. And beloved, then then he showed me the true riches, which is Jesus Christ. And that's what happens with this younger son. He goes away, he spends the substance, and before long, it doesn't take long. I've known people that, a a lady that comes to the restaurant that won the lottery, she and her husband won the lottery, or they won a big inheritance or something like, inherited a great inheritance, and had just, you know, probably hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of dollars, and wasted it. And now, uh, you know, she, she came up and asked me for prayer for uh, a drug addiction that she has, seeking deliverance from that, and just, um, you know, really living in an apartment, and all that has been wasted, and drugs will do that, and a lot of things in the world will take that money very quickly. And that's what happened with this young man. He had lots of friends when he had the money, but then once all the money was spent, and that's the way the world is. If you want to be friends with the world, keep that in mind. They'll be your friend as long as you have money. The Proverbs teach that, that if you're rich, that friends are easy to come by, to paraphrase. But the poor man, even his family, he has trouble finding friends even in his own family. So when you've got money, when you've got wealth, the world will be your friend. But look at the young man's account. Once all that was spent, it says a famine arose in the land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have fain filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my fathers have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? And he repents. He says, I will arise, go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. I love that. That he didn't say, I've sinned against thee to his father. He said, I've sinned against heaven. And when you sin, when you're brought to repentance, godly sorrow to work with repentance, we're shown by the Holy Spirit that our sin was not against mother or father. It wasn't against our friend. It wasn't against our coworker. It was against God. Every sin that we commit is against God. Now, it has negative consequences on those around us, but our sin is always and only against God. He says, And am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. The son said unto him, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. There's the compassion and the joy and the mercy that God's children find when we repent and come back home to the father. He could say, well, you've embarrassed me, you've uh, wasted what I gave you, and now you're going to have to, if you, you want to come home, you're going to have to be a, a servant out there, and you're going to be the lowest uh, in priority in the family, and we're going to be sure that you suffer the consequences of your bad decisions. No, the father does exactly the opposite, puts a, the best robe on him, and puts a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and then they're going to have a celebration. And Jesus is teaching about the context of these three stories that go along together is that Jesus is talking about how much God loves it when sinners repent contrasted to those who who don't think they need to repent that God would much rather have a sinner repenting than than a sinner who thinks they're not a sinner there's somebody who's self-righteous and thinks well I've been doing the right thing all along and then looks down on the person that's 
sinful and that repents. The elder brother here was like the Pharisees, self-righteous, um, condemning of his younger brother. When his younger brother came home, he wasn't happy, he wasn't thankful that his brother was alive and safe and well. He was upset and angry that the father would make so much fuss over the return of his brother. Now, this older brother is nothing like Jesus Christ. He's the opposite of Jesus Christ. The older brother here, I'm told from commentators, should have gone out to seek his brother. He should have been the first one to leave the family to go out when his brother was in need to find where his brother was at and to help him. That should have been what the elder brother did. Older brothers, that's what we should do for our younger siblings if you are an older brother. It says, Now his elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. He was angry and would not go in. Our elder brother, Jesus Christ, he's a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. He is our eldest brother. And unlike this prodigal's older brother, he left the comforts of home. He left uh, the Father's presence in heaven to come down to where we are at, where we uh, are in our sin. And he took upon himself the likeness of sinful flesh. And he suffered and bled and died to bring us back home. He's the antitype of the prodigal's older brother. He's our dear and precious friend. And so for us to choose friendship with the world is to declare enmity against God. It's as if to say, I hate God. I'm not going to be faithful to God when you choose friendship with the world. You lust and have not, you kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you have not because you ask not. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lust. The context gives us, I believe, what he's teaching about um, friendship with the world, and that is lusting after and desiring the things that are in the world. He says, Do you think the scripture saith in vain, The spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? That's the, the natural spirit of man, lusting and envying and hating those that have the things that we want. And he's talking about your prayer life when you are asking God for things. Are you asking according to his will? Are you asking for things that are godly and that are beneficial and that are going to benefit you and benefit the kingdom? Or are you asking for things that you just want to consume upon your lust that you're going to use for yourself and for your own pleasure and your own enjoyment? And he says... Maybe you're not even asking at all. Maybe you're just going out there and you're trying to get it. You're fighting for it and you're warring. He says, but this is not, this is not of God. The wisdom of the world is bitter envying and strife in your hearts. He says, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. <clears throat> friendship with the world or friendship with God. 
Pilate had to make that decision. I believe you and I daily have to make the decision. And then Galatians, we'll close with this, Galatians chapter 6. Here's the attitude we should have, verse 14, towards the world and towards our relationship with the world. Um, maybe, maybe you're a very moral person and you say, well, these things like materialism you've been talking about, they don't really tempt me. I'm not, I'm not tempted. I'm not enticed by the, the things of this world as far as what I've heard you say. But I want to tell you about a man named Saul of Tarsus. And he was a very religious man. He was a Pharisee. He was zealous of the tradition of his fathers. And he may not have been enticed by materialism, but he was still a proud and vain man that was enticed by the things of this world. He says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 14, he says, he says, he profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in my own nation, being more exceeding zealous of the traditions of my fathers. Paul's talking about before his conversion, before he became a believer in Jesus Christ, before he met Jesus Christ. He said he profited in the Jews' religion. He was a religious man. He was a moral man. But he was still friends with the world because... His religion was not based upon a relationship with God. It was not based upon serving God. Even though, this is the irony of it, even though he thought he was serving God and doing God a service by persecuting Christians, it was not because he loved God. It was because he loved himself. He said he profited in the Jews' religion. In other words, the kingdom that he was building, the kingdom he was seeking, wasn't the kingdom of God, his righteousness. It was the kingdom of Saul as a religious Jew. And in persecuting the Christians, he thought he was benefiting his nation. He thought he was uh, following in the tradition of his fathers and that he was taking care of, quote, the people of God. That's how, that's how subtle this can become when we're talking about being friends with the world. He was being the friend of the world and the enemy with God. But now, after his conversion, Galatians chapter 6, he says, verse 14, he says, But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who you're friends with, is going to be determined by who and what you're glorying in. Are you glorying in your bank account? Are you glorying in the car you drive? Are you glorying in the cars you wear, in the friends that you have, in the, in the occupation that you hold? Paul says, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. God forbid that I should glory save in the very thing which is, which is a, a, rep, a symbol of shame and humiliation and, and condemnation and death. Paul says, this is the very thing that I want to uh, glory in. This is the very thing that as believers, we uh, are given the example of glorying in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. He says, I love Jesus for dying for my sins. I love him for going to that cross and bearing my sin burden. Well, Paul says, because of that cross, where your sin was taken away, because of that cross where the Son of God died, because of that cross, which is an emblem of, of shame and suffering and yet of hope and of glory to come and of the forgiveness of sins, he says, because of that cross, the world is crucified unto me. Because of the cross, the world is crucified unto you. Because of the cross, the world is crucified to God's children. And he says, and I unto the world. You're as good as dead in the world's eyes and the world's as good as dead in your eyes because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Because your sin was nailed there with him. Because in a sense, you were crucified with him. And when he died, you died. And if you've been baptized this morning, you have, you have owned 
that, that, that symbol, baptism, which symbolizes the idea that you have been identified with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. And if you believe that he died for your sins and haven't followed him in gospel baptism, we want to encourage you to, to do that as soon as possible, to, to declare your faith that he died for your sins and that in so doing, the world is now dead to you. The things that this world has to offer are no longer an enticement. They may be uh, enticing and tempting in the sense that occasionally it catches your fancy, but as far as living your life, as far as your, your, the course direction of your life, it's no longer after the world. The world's crucified to you. It's now after the crucified one, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're dead to the world. You're of no benefit to the world, to the world order. Some people want to usher in a new world age and, and want there to be world peace and I guess that's good, but it's not going to happen. Not until Jesus Christ comes down and burns the whole thing up and starts again. The new heavens and the new earth. God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who are we friends with this morning? Who are we following after? Who are we loving and being faithful to? We want to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ by His grace. And I pray that God will give us the grace and the courage and His Spirit. To, to be content with being rejected by the world. You know, Jesus was hated. He was hated by many for no good reason other than being the Son of God and speaking the truth in love. And beloved, that should be our greatest desire is to glorify and honor Jesus Christ, to speak the truth in love, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbors, our self, desiring to do the Father's will, whatever that may be. And if that's what the world hates, then we need to be content with being hated by the world and recognize that this world is passing away. It's only here for a brief time. The world to come, the age to come, the time that we have with God in eternity will last forever. He can take care of you. He can protect you from those that might dislike you for the decisions you make. He's a friend that sticketh closer than a brother, and he has redeemed us with his own precious blood. He's worthy of our service and of our love. God bless you.